You Look Like Me, a podcast making sense of the life and families of donor-conceived people. This is my story, and it's also a place for yours. When I first found out I was donor-conceived, I was 21 years old, and that was too late. I should have known much earlier. I felt betrayed and confused. My mom was gay, so I always had two moms. I've always known since I was young enough to understand. I learned the truth about my origins when I was 35 years old. It felt like my brain exploded like a supernova. I felt as though my life had been a lie. Welcome to the first episode of You Look Like Me. I'm Louise McLaughlin, and until a few years ago, almost no one knew that I was born with the help of a sperm donor. I'm also a journalist, and after a surprise discovery, I started sharing my own story publicly. Now I want to send a clear message to others conceived with the help of a sperm or egg donor. You are not alone. I have spoken to countless donor-conceived or DC people, and I've come to realise that although we have very, very different stories about how we found out and whether the experience was good or bad, we are joined by similar themes and threads. And that's what this podcast wants to focus on, the similarities and contrasts between our experiences and to delve deeper into what makes a modern family. In the first five episodes, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my story as I search for the man who donated his sperm in the 90s who presumably looks like me and to see what other mysteries I uncover along the way. At the same time, you'll get to meet other people who have often unwittingly taken similar journeys and you'll hear them talk about their hopes, fears, and discoveries. Let's begin with where it all started for me. Finding out. All oh, right. What was I like as a child? Are you recording now? Oh. So this is my mum. Okay, you were quite happy. You made friends straight away, but really as a child, I suppose you were very independent. Hmm. We always knew you were very clever. Oh, well, I'll take that. You were very caring. You put a lot of time into things that you did for people. And you played on your own a lot. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I was an only child. Your Barbie dolls occupied a lot of the time of the day. I was imaginative. I think I've got an idea. If I use my hair clip, I can pick the lock on that door and we can escape. This is me, aged 13, in a school play. Drama was my passion. Not that you can tell from the terrible acting in that clip. That was back in 2004, the year my life changed forever. One night, my parents sat me down and, against guidance at the time, told me the truth. So I remember you and Dad coming home, sitting me down, and then you were kind of doing the talking and Dad was kind of just sitting there. Mum and Dad had struggled to have children, so while living in London, they had turned to science. They used in vitro fertilization or IVF and an anonymous sperm donor to have me. And then I can't remember what you said, but I remember you got to the point and I kind of figured out where it was going just because of what you were saying. And I remember saying, oh, so you're saying dad's not my dad. And you said, no, 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 of course he's your dad. Just probably not in that way. If you caught the word probably just there, you might think it's a bit odd. It's because of a strange practice back in the early days of IVF called sperm mixing. It means that when doctors used sperm from a donor, they also used some from my dad. This left an odd situation where no one at the table actually knew for sure if dad was my biological dad or not. This odd fact should have presented itself as hope, perhaps. 
but I think it actually just made the whole thing feel more confusing and a bit cruel. That's how I remember it. Do you remember it differently? or? Um, well, for a start, Dad wasn't there when I told you. What? Yes. I probably hadn't intended telling you at that very moment. I don't know what brought it up, but anyway. Wow. The two of us were in the kitchen, and I told you the whole story, and Dad came into it. Right. Obviously joined in the conversation. Mm. That's crazy. Never trust your memory. (laughs) (laughs) This is such a weird revelation to me. I'm not sure if I misremembered that night because of my age at the time or because after that first conversation, we didn't really talk about any of it again for around two years. At one point, I was actually convinced I'd made the entire thing up in my head just for attention. I didn't bring it up for so long because I didn't want to cause all of that pain all over again. That night was the second time I'd ever seen my dad cry and I remember how unsettling that felt. I spent that night in a daze, lying in between my parents in their double bed, staring at their wedding photo on the bedroom wall, and blinking away tears. The shape of my family had changed, and I felt my own shape change too. I never in my life would have expected to be donor-conceived. It was never anything that even crossed my mind or would ever think would be a part of my life. I was extremely shocked. I had no idea. That's Ali. She was in a bar where she works, surrounded by a group of friends and colleagues when she found out from a DNA test she'd only taken for fun. And if 23andMe didn't exist, I would never know. Ali was 32. Literally everybody who I know was around me when I opened these results. And then I clicked over to where you can see all your relatives. They connect you based on how much you genetically share. And it popped up, this man is your father. And I said, no, he's not. (laughs) I doubted it straight away. You know, I went online immediately and I'm looking up, you know, 23andMe scam. 23andMe has a dad, not my dad, you know, things like that. I called 23andMe customer service and they were very kind to me and they said that they would redo the test if I thought that it was really false but that it's probably it's not false and then I thought well maybe my mom cheated on my dad I contacted my mom and I said hey we need to talk about this thing because something weird's going on here and then she did finally come clean and she said yeah no Um, your dad is infertile. He's not capable of having children. And this is how we decided to have you. She said, you know, there's never a good time to tell somebody that. And I said, well, there is, (laughs) there's probably a thousand good times. You could have told me this. And she said, what am I supposed to do? Just tell you over dinner. Hey, by the way, your dad's not your biological father. And I asked my mom, I said, were you planning on telling me at any point, like, this is a really big secret to keep from somebody. And she said, yes, she was planning on keeping the secret until she died. It was really upsetting. And I did feel like it was kind of like some big secret that they knew about my whole life and nobody ever let me in on it. But my uh, father who raised me, yeah, I talked to him too. And he was actually very relieved. He said that every day since these straight to market 
DNA tests became available for people, he's been nervous that either me or my brother would do one and find out the truth. And he said, you know, it's kind of a relief for me to know that you know now and that I don't have to carry this anymore. Knowing that both my parents knew the truth about us, about me, and had kept it from me, felt kind of like a betrayal. I had been the only one in the dark. For Ali, the consequences of not knowing turned out to be quite brutal. We'll get to that a little bit later. In the months after I was told, I spent a lot of time looking into a mirror. I would stare into it until my eyes became dry and my vision blurred and tears brimmed. Sometimes I would hold up a hand to block half of my face from vision, trying to subtract my mum's features until all I was left with was a rough guess of what my biological dad might look like. Brown hair, blue eyes, button nose, freckles. And I would try to figure out what he could be like by looking at my skills and hobbies. What hadn't come from mum? What hadn't been influenced by the dad who raised me? One time I went to a summer camp and there was this man there with blue eyes. Perhaps this was him, it didn't add up, he was too young. But my mind was in overdrive. I began to write my donor undeliverable letters. I wondered if he had children that he loved. And I wondered why he couldn't love me, since I was his child too. I was told I wasn't allowed to tell friends or family. Absolutely no one knew and no one should. In some ways, that was the hardest part. At 13, I quickly learned that to acknowledge my own truth would cause hurt to the people I cared about the most. All of this was hard to process as a teenager, but for some people, the truth comes far later in life. The moment that I found out was, well, it came in stages. I had heard the story before, but I just had never really believed it. That's Jenny. She was born in the Southern States of America and grew up with four brothers. Today, she lives in the suburbs with kids of her own and a dog called Annabelle. I can get her over here. You can see her. Annabelle! Oh, so cute. So cute. I wanted to talk to Jenny because for years she's existed in a sort of strange middle ground. This uncertainty of not quite knowing her story, although there have been hints at the truth. In the last few months, though, things have changed. That's what I want to hear more about. What can happen when the threads of your life begin to unravel and you start to search for the truth? Okay, so you're saying you heard a story. Um, who told you? What had you heard? I mean, this part is kind of maybe sad for me and hard for me, but my parents were divorced when I was about 11 or 12 and my father got remarried and he married a person who he had a lot of arguments with, a lot of fighting, a lot of yelling, a lot of screaming. And they would drink a lot and we would be visiting and they would kind of yell things at each other. And my stepmother was just never very nice. She would kind of say, you know, you're a test tube baby, you know, and I didn't really believe her because I knew that that had just been invented. And so I didn't think that that was true. The first IVF or test tube baby arrived in the late 1970s. That's more than a decade after Jenny was born. Well, based on that, she dismissed her stepmom's comments. But of course, sperm donation was happening well before IVF. Years later, she got another clue. My brother told me when I was in my 20s, but he wasn't really sure. He just said, you know, this is a story that I've been told, that we were conceived with the use of a sperm donor. And in 2019, June, around Father's Day, 
I decided that I wanted to know for sure. It sounds like you were kind of going through this push and pull for so many years then. So originally you're saying your stepmother kind of gave you hints that you didn't quite understand when you were a child. She did it to, in a yelling, screaming rage to hurt me and hurt my father. Right. So you didn't believe it just because of the way it was delivered. Exactly. Um, and then there was another kind of hint in your 20s. But again, it was delivered in this, well, you know, maybe, you know, maybe you are, maybe you're not. What age were you when you finally did the test, when you finally went, you know what, let's just, let's just find out. I was 55. Right. Wow. Yeah. My brother, I told him I was doing this test and he said, well, whatever you do, don't tell mom, don't talk to mom about this. She doesn't want to talk about it. So I went ahead and sent away for the ancestry kit and I got the results in August of 2019. I think that that's when it kind of really settled in my brain that, that this could be true. But I kind of sat with it and I didn't do anything about it and kind of said, well, it doesn't really matter anyway. I am who I am. That doesn't change. I decided it didn't matter. Um, but I think that it just kind of was something that I thought maybe it did matter. I can really relate with Jenny having to sit on all of this information. It took me two years to bring it up again, even with my own parents. It took Jenny six months until she was ready to bring it up. I just decided to ask my mother. Finally, I said, I did this ancestry test and this came up, what, what can you tell me? And so I think that when she finally told me what happened, I really kind of believed it. I mean, that conversation sounds crazy. I mean, was it face to face? I mean, how did that start? How did you bring that up? It was over the phone and I think I just said, I want to talk to you about something that might be hard for you to hear, but I do want to talk to you about it. And it's not going to change the way I feel about you, but I want to know, um, you know, what happened? Was I conceived with the use of a spur? I don't know exactly what I said. I probably was very factual about it. I said, I think I was conceived with a sperm donor and I don't think it was my dad. And she was really surprised. I actually had to tell her more than once. It turns out Jenny's mum, a woman now in her 80s, wasn't sure either. What they did was they knew they couldn't, they were having trouble conceiving, so they went to a doctor. And the doctor said, well, we have this treatment that we can do. And we can mix your husband's sperm with donor sperm. And then we'll inject it into you. And then you won't know. Right, I see. And then you should go home, you know, that's what she said. You won't know. And you, and you don't tell anybody. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting because that's exactly what my parents did. Um, and yeah, it's that plausible deniability really, isn't it? It's again, when my parents told me age 13, so a similar kind of age to when you would have been given these hints by your stepmom, it was very much, uh, you know, he might not be, but, but he might be. And it was so strange because they didn't know either. Right. I think it was just, it was just done so you could kind of get on with your life and pretend you hadn't had a donor involved at all, wasn't it? Right. I mean, and I kind of feel like, I mean, I must have been a miracle baby. I mean, I must have been a miracle to them. I mean, my older brother was donor conceived and he was definitely a miracle baby. That's the way they always treated him. But, um, you know, I was also a miracle baby. And I know my, I'm very much loved by my parents. But, you know, growing up, I mean, I don't know if this is a common experience for everybody, but I always felt like I didn't fit in. And I can even remember times when my father would look at me like in wonderment. And the, the sad part about me telling my mother, the part where she cried and was really sad about it. She was compassionate. 
She gave me all the information I needed to know. There's lots of details she didn't remember. She was surprised that I was not my father's child, but she was sad and she cried because she said that when she and my father decided to do this, they promised that they would never tell anybody. They said, if we're gonna do this, we can never tell anybody. And he did tell somebody. That's the, the stepmother. The stepmother, yeah. Right. Because I think I must have shared that I had heard that. That was the part that she felt really betrayed about, is that he had broken that promise. Jenny discovered that her three brothers, one older, two younger, are also donor-conceived, and all likely through different donors, which means in the 1960s her parents made this choice four separate times. I wondered what that was like for them. My mother's the kind of person, if she went to the doctor, and the doctor said, well, this is what we can do, and this is the treatment that we can have, that she just would have gone along with it. And she wanted children. She wouldn't have asked a ton of questions. Okay, so let's let's go forward to where we are right now. Um, 56, you know that your biological dad is out there. I mean, what's, what's happening with that? Um, I know that people can find their biological fathers using ancestry and i had some close connections i had some people that showed up as first cousins i'm like who are these people i don't know them you can do a lot of sleuthing on facebook and find people when ancestry went online on the library so you didn't have to buy a subscription <laughs> you can um search census records city directories they have marriage licenses death certificates, they have social security information. You can kind of search people by name and start to build a tree. And somebody helped me. There's these people out there on Facebook, they call them search angels, and you can message with them. And they've done this before, and they can kind of help you figure out if you're doing it right. I was just going to say, you know, I wanted to do this as well. And it was so complicated that I actually gave up. I mean, I just, I just couldn't do it. And I wanted to you know, I wanted to find out more and I want to find out more, but just the process was so much for me. What was the driving force for you to kind of stick at it and get someone to help you? I think it was like a puzzle. And then she had a lot of energy and she kind mm. of did the work behind me and confirmed that based on DNA, that was the most likely candidate. But what's the emotional process there? I mean, why, why put yourself through it and why? Well, all of these people were from, from a certain area, I'll just say, they're all from Cleveland, um, all kind of from this one area. And then they're all the way back to um, Russia and they're all speaking Yiddish. And this is just something I don't know anything about. So I'm really, really curious what it would be like to grow up in this family of people that are all kind of the same and from the same background. I wondered what that was like. And I thought, if I'm a part of this, I wanna know about it. Yeah, it sounds like it's almost, the opposite of what you say about, you know, as a kid feeling like you didn't fit in and then all of a sudden you see this community and in your head you go, I could be a part of that. And that's that feeling that you've maybe felt you were missing. I think so. I mean, and I know that there's no guarantee that that would happen. I mean, my donor could be deceased. He could not want to have anything to do with me. Well, I, I guess as well, because you, you were 56 when you found out. So there's always that chance. Right. I guess everyone has that chance, but it, it's higher, obviously, the older you get. Okay, so you find him. I mean, talk me through that process and talk me through as well. You know, 56, you've kind of had hints through your life, but you've kind of maybe, you know, pushed them back a little bit. Yeah. I mean, 
I, I can't imagine, again, I was 13, it's such a different experience, but does it unravel what you think of yourself or did everything make sense? I mean, what are you feeling when you find him? Well, some things make sense. Some things don't make sense. Every day is kind of a new feeling about it. Some days I'm like, well, I'm not going to do anything with that information. It doesn't change who I am. I have my own family now. I'm happy with my family. I have great relationships with my extended family. Well, some, some I don't, but some I have these great relationships with. And these people love me for who I am. I don't need anything more, right? And, and I don't want to hurt, my parents are elderly, I don't want to hurt them. Um, I don't have a great relationship with the father who raised me. We don't talk that often. He's not really interested in my life. Right. So it's easy for me not to mention this to him. Do you think that that played into why you were curious about another potential father figure? I don't know the way you see the donor, but was that a driving force, do you reckon? Maybe, maybe not, because I don't want to put any expectations on somebody that I don't know. Yeah. And I guess the other kind of part of it, it's like, so for 56 years, I, I should have thought of this, because this is kind of the thing that I am feeling sad about, about finding this out. The thing that makes me feel really alone is that I have no full siblings now. Yeah. So like, I only have half siblings. And I think that I'm feeling a little bit of grief about that, um, that... You know, I'm the only person that is the mix of me, right? I mean, everybody is the only person that's the mix of them, but I don't have any full siblings. No, I know, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah, no, I know what you mean. And so that feels a little lonely. Yeah, and you thought you did, so obviously... Yeah. It's like something's taken away almost. Yeah. Things can feel like they're being taken away, but there are also new opportunities. Jenny's bio dad is out there somewhere. So I had a name. And then, of course, I had his address and, and I thought, well, I'm not going to do anything. I'll just wait. Everybody's going on Ancestry. Somebody will reach out to me. I'll just wait. And I was like, what would I even say to him? How would I write a letter? I found out that he was a, a doctor, an OBGYN doctor. And I thought, well, then he really knew what he was doing. Like, there's not going to be, it shouldn't really be a surprise to this person and I know a lot of donors are doctors. I know that, that, you know, if you did a sperm donation that a baby could end up like, it's not going to be what, how could that have happened? It's just, even though it was 56 years ago, that's just not going to be a surprise. So I wrote a letter about maybe five weeks ago and I put it in a, like a greeting card and I mailed it to the address that I thought would be the right address. Um, Talk to me about the letter. Talk to me about the process of writing the letter. Yeah, so I kind of started it off saying something like, I'm sure you never expected to get a letter like this. Um, I said my name and where I was born and how old I was and that I live in where I live and I'm comfortable and I'm married and have children. Did you include any photos of yourself? I did include a photo of myself, yeah. I included my Facebook profile photo so that if he were savvy, enough to look that up, he would recognize me. And then my Facebook profile shows, you know, the life of a 56 year old woman living in the suburbs. There's lots of food and pictures of my dog. And, um, <laughs> you know, I'm a real person. I didn't want to like freak him out, right? I don't think I came right out and said, I think you are my, my, my donor father. I don't think it comes right out and says that. But of course I said, did you give a sperm donation? So it, it, it's direct and clear, but not accusatory. It's clear, yeah. It, 
if he's the guy who it is, then he'll know what you're talking about, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I did a DNA test and I remember literally walking to the post box and the feel of that box leaving my fingers and dropping in. I mean, how does it feel to deliver a letter oh. to your biological father? I mean, you must have wanted to claw it back. Almost. I did. I, I, I thought a lot about it. I slept on it. I typed it up. I shared it with some people. I um, rewrote it, put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, carried it around for a while. I mean, I really did stop and think, I don't have to do this. I don't have to do it. I cannot do this. I can wait. But what if I waited and he died, right? And then I didn't get the chance to meet him and talk to him. And, you know, what, what is it that I want? What's my end game, right? What would be my ideal conversation with this person? Well, what would it be? I think it would be, I mean, what will I most likely hear is different than what I would really love to hear. So what I would love to hear, I'm not going to hear this, but what I would love to hear would be, you know, yeah, I did that. I really wanted to do that because I was helping people have a baby. And so I just wanted to be a part of helping people. That's why I'm a doctor. I want to help people. And I often thought about that. I wondered if a child had been born from that. I'm so happy to meet you. And, and what would you like to know about your extended family? Like that would, be, I mean, I'm getting teared up because that would be, I guess, really what I would like to hear, but I don't imagine that I'm going to hear that. Um, what you just described is quite basic, you know, because some donor conceived people, depending on their circumstances, you know, are seeking a father figure or they're seeking open arms. And it doesn't sound like you're, you're looking for that. What you were looking for is just a good guy, effectively. Yeah. Um, but, but you still feel like that's too much to ask. Or unrealistic yeah because I mean maybe maybe he's older and he's never going to get the letter because somebody else opens his mail or maybe he doesn't live there anymore maybe he's like I don't remember doing any of that I don't want anything to do with you I don't know who you are you can't be part of my family you know people I guess people deny that they did it I, I don't know you know a lot of things could happen <laughs> So, yeah. and, um, and I haven't heard anything, well, but I did hear something last night. Okay. <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> I know. So this is like that you didn't know this. And so I was like, oh, I'm not going to do anything about this. I'm going to let Louise know what happened. So I um, tested on Ancestry and I tested on 23andMe. <laughs> so about um, Two weeks ago, I saw some of the matches on there. And one of the matches on there was a person who would be my half-niece. The woman who sent the message is 20 years old. She would be the granddaughter of Jenny's donor. The message said, Wow, isn't this crazy that we could be first cousins? What do you know about your family in Cleveland? But Jenny knows deciding how to respond is complicated. This could be a way that I could find out if he got my letter or if my half siblings would be open to meeting me. So you think she's the daughter of your half siblings, social children, as it were, exactly. who, who are the, the kids he raised. Right. Wow. Wow. That's a huge link. That is like, right. That's yeah. That's so interesting. I can only imagine in that moment where that comes through, 
there must be like a, an almost light bulb moment where you go, oh my God, this is, this is the match I've waited for. This is exactly what I wanted. I really wanted them to come and go because so many people have tested and for somebody to come and say, why do you pop up? What's your story? And then I can say, oh, I know, I know what our story is. That's big though for you, for you to share that information. If her you know, parent doesn't know, for example, it's, you know, it's a lot for you to emotionally take on as well, isn't it? It's kind of scary. Part of me was like excited, happy. Part of me was like, oh my goodness, what have I done? Um, <laughs> like, I don't want to, to, to freak her. Like, she, I don't want to say words to her like sperm mixing. I mean, that's going to freak out a 20 year old. I don't want her to think that her grandfather had an affair from her grandmother. That would be very hard to hear. And that's not true. Right. And so um, I just don't want um, her to be freaked out and close the door before I have a chance to kind of foster some communication and some like realization that we are connected. That's what I've heard so many people say. It's that moment of you get so excited and you kind of find something you've been looking for for so long. And then all of a sudden you have to reel yourself back in. You have to reel your excitement back in. You have to reel every action you want to take back in because all of a sudden it's not about you anymore. It's not just your story. It's the story of all these other people. Right. There's emotion in so many different ways there, isn't there? Yeah. And one of the things that I really want to be careful about, because I think that this could be like really hard, is that I know the birth dates of his children and he did this like some of his children are older than me and some of his children are younger than oh, me. Oh, wow. Okay. So I feel like that is going to be something that could potentially be hard. But when I wrote the letter, I wrote when I was born. So I don't want it to be a secret. I don't want to go into this and, and have any secrets be later. I mean, there's, there's a difference between, you know, privacy and secrets. And I think that the fact that I'm donor conceived is just who I am. And I don't mind if people tell people. I haven't necessarily shared it with all of my extended family, but if they ask me, I will tell them. And if they go on Ancestry and see me there and look at my tree, they'll know. Yeah. I've only known my secret for a short time and you've known your secret for much longer. Does all of your family and all of your friends know? Um, yeah, I mean, so I started speaking out about it a few years ago. So yeah, I would have been 26, I guess, when I started being open about it. Um, and it was the best decision I've ever made. The years that I didn't speak about it, especially as a kid, especially as a teenager, I mean, they, I think that they were really damaging. Um, yeah, it's just a, like I said, you know, I did really feel that weight of shit, I have to protect my parents here. I have to, you know, keep this secret. Do you think then that I should tell my family, my extended family? Um, that is a big question. But I, because of your relationship with your dad, it sounds like you had a good relationship up until recently, as you mentioned. Um, so I think he needs to know first, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, but part of him, I guess, really does know, but he doesn't know that I know. Well, again, it, because it was sperm mixing, he might not know. Yeah, that's right. He might not know. Gosh, I'm really, I don't really want to do that. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel you. Um, well, that's it, isn't it? It's you have to protect other people or you you feel a responsibility to protect other people. And I mean, it's powerful information to some people. To some people, it doesn't matter, but to some people it does. And Do you have anybody in your family that rejected you because of that? No. Okay. No one knew, but everyone was like, that's great. You know, this is the thing. So obviously, you know, we're a few decades apart, but I was IVF and I was really in the early days of it. You know, I was 15 years after the very first IVF baby. Um, and I think that was maybe where the shame came from, from my parents. It was just such a new thing. It wasn't the done thing. So yeah, they were carrying a lot of shame. But then again, I know, you know, with male fertility and female fertility, there's a lot of pressure and, you know, men and women do feel a lot of shame in that way as well. I'm sure my father felt shame about not being able to, to have children. Yeah. I'm sure of that. So whether, you know, if you did ever choose to have that conversation, it's do you want to bring that up and you know turn that mystery into a fact well i don't know right he's in his 80s does he need to know i don't know what if he found out another way would that be too i guess i have to be careful about that right i don't think he listens to podcasts <laughs> yeah it's difficult and like I said I think it's just it's so interesting because you, you know you're here speaking to me about your story but the more you talk about it you realize that it's not just your story is it it's his story it's your donor's story it's your mum's story it's everyone's story and that's why it's so complicated and I think that's why it's so hard to make that choice to speak out originally because it's it's yours to tell but then it feels kind of like it's not and it's sharing and not oversharing and yeah I, I struggle with it as well you know I I want to be honest about my experience and finding out that my father wasn't my biological father and then the second time I saw him cry was when he told me he might not be my dad um, and I associated that with me even though it wasn't my fault even though I hadn't constructed the situation that led to it I did associate that pain with something that was associated with me and I decided never to do it again. Uh, then, you know, whatever happened down the line happened down the line. But yeah, it's it's one of those things you do. You want to protect everyone involved because it's a painful topic. It just is. Yeah, I totally understand. You've given me a lot to think about. I don't want to be the cause of... I'm, I'm sure that he doesn't have to know. Well, I don't know. I don't really think he needs to know that I know. That's where I am right now. I don't think he needs to know that I know. I don't know what my father that raised me could tell me that I don't already know. He could say, yeah, that's true, but I loved you ever since you were born. I mean, I know that. So he doesn't need to tell me that. But that's nice to hear. <laughs> yeah, maybe that would be nice to hear. Yeah. I'm just kind of playing out in my head what that conversation would sound like if I talked to my dad. I mean, we started off, you were kind of imagining the interaction with your biological father, and now you're kind of thinking about the man who raised you. Which one scares you more? <laughs> oh, yeah. Maybe the relationship with the man who raised me, because 
you know, if he said, well, I always knew that. I always knew that you weren't my daughter. I guess he might say that. What if he said that? Wouldn't that be reversed? He might say that. And that would hurt a lot. I think what goes through my head about this, I've read a lot of other people's stories. And when you watch movies, you see TV shows, when they talk about somebody like, oh, well, you know, we can't get pregnant. So let's just go to a sperm donor or whatever they're going to do. So lightly taken, like, oh, this here's a solution. You just go to a sperm donor. You just do this. It's like, it's just never that easy. So much more complicated and can be so much more painful. Yeah, I think that's the issue, isn't it? You know, they represent that side. They represent the choices that the parents make initially. And I think it's just so important that, you know, we speak now and we get our point of view across. Because people result out of it. You're right. It's not just a flippant decision. It's, it's people. And somehow where you come from, somehow where I come from matters to me. Somehow it matters. Knowing the truth of where you come from, I think matters to everybody. But it, I can see that it really matters to me. So that was me and Jenny just trying to work things out. And that's kind of what I want to do here, work things out. Although, by the way, I am not an expert. I'm just trying to use what I've learned from my own experiences and from talking to other DC people. And one of the things I am starting to unpick is why knowing where you come from really matters. Which brings me back to Ali from earlier. She found out she was DC aged 32. And aside from all the questions it threw up around belonging and identity, Ali had tangible reasons for wanting to know about where she came from. Finding out that I was donor conceived has really changed the way that I look at myself. It's changed a lot of things. I do feel like it's better to disclose those things earlier on in life, especially for me. I have lupus and I didn't know about 50% of what I'm genetically predisposed to until too late, essentially for me, it's too late. You know, I would have liked to have known this a long time ago. You know, I, I'm glad that I'm more mature and that I'm capable of handling these kinds of things, but I, I think it could have been done better. And in my family's defense, the clinic that they went to counseled them to not tell me. So they were counseled to not say anything. It was the 80s and they just thought nobody would ever know. It was that not knowing that was playing on my own mind when I turned 15. I asked my parents if we could do a DNA test. I needed to know, for sure. The results arrived fairly quickly, a jumble of letters and jargon, and then one sentence that changed everything. It was something along the lines of, from our data, we cannot see any biological match between person X, me, and person Y, my dad. I told him. And just like I feared, I dug up all of the hurt all over again. That was the third time I'd seen him cry. And now, at age 15, I had no idea who my biological father was. And it would be years before the kind of big database DNA test that Jenny and Ali took would be available to me. Those tests helped my search for my wider biological family. And I discovered that you don't always find what you expect. That's where we're going next episode. 
In the meantime, if you want to continue the conversation, you can find me on Twitter at youlooklikeme underscore. If you liked this episode, tell someone. I'm Louise McLaughlin. Thanks for listening and don't forget to share. liked this podcast please do consider supporting us we're a team of two all self-funded and it's done alongside our day jobs if you want to support us you can buy us a virtual coffee or a pint at coffee.com that's ko-fi.com forward slash you look like me or you can set up a recurring donation in an amount of your choice at patreon.com forward slash you look like me If you can't remember those links, don't worry, you can find both on our Twitter page.